0: and time period over which to measure the metrics and at what point is it appropriate to incorporate them into the incentive plans, understanding the balance of the cost and the benefit of the different metrics as you include them in the business model.
1: Welcome to the Executive Compensation Podcast. On this show, we discuss all aspects of executive compensation. Whether you're a compensation committee member, a seasoned compensation professional, or just curious to learn more about executive compensation, then this show is the answer. Each episode brings you a focused and actionable interview on specific topics of executive compensation. This episode is brought to you by Meridian Compensation Partners. Meridian works with compensation committees to ensure the most effective processes are in place to go beyond mere compliance with governance requirements and create healthy dynamic relationships between the board, management, and its advisors. Meridian helps boards use compensation to attract and retain critical talent and to make informed business decisions that will link pay and performance, drive business results, increase shareholder value, and mitigate potential risks. Learn more at meridian.com cp.com Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Executive Compensation Podcast. Today, I am excited to have uh, Jim Heim and Tom McNeil on the show. We're going to be talking about tailoring pay to the situation. We're going to break that down into pay mix items, incentive metrics items, and implications of deviating from proxy advisor preferred practices. So really excited to dive into these. Jim and Tom, can you quickly introduce yourself to, both, to everyone in the audience?
2: Jim Heim. I am a boston based consultant with Meridian Compensation Partners. I've been doing this work for over two decades now. My sort of sweet spot in terms of clients served includes technology companies and life science companies. And absolutely, a lot of companies on the. IPO ramps. Looking forward to the uh, discussion. I'm Tom McNeil. I'm a partner with Meridian Compensation Partners based in the
0: Woodlands, Texas, just north of Houston. Like Jim, I've been doing this for more than two decades. While I focus probably mostly in the energy space, I do assist clients in a broad range of industries, including telecommunications, financial services, consumer services, and utilities. And likewise, very excited to engage in today's discussion.
1: Great. Well, let's dive in on our first question here on uh, for pay mix items. And so media articles and proxy advisors and to some extent institutional investor voting policies often assess executive pay using a single template without any regards for industry specific facts and circumstances. Is this a useful framework for understanding executive compensation or should pay be analyzed by industry sector?
0: The answer is not a simple black and white answer. It's, uh, it's really yes and no. The proxy advisor's perspectives are useful for some as they offer standardized views across a large swath of industries and companies. However, not all industries are the same, which leads to varied applicability and great debate of the proxy advisor observations for many industries. One area that this may be as, as evident as any is in regards to peer group selection which varies in across industries. Unfortunately, uh, the media perspective often doesn't have any template, at least not a consistent template, and as a result, there's often misinterpretation of compensation practices and quantum.
2: It's really an impossible task I think that is presented to the poor reporter who each year has to think about what how do we summarize what's happening in the world of executive pay? The idea here is do we somehow combine these thousands of companies that really have a thousand different stories, a thousand different uh, challenges that they're trying to solve for, and probably have uh, tailored their pay programs accordingly, and and try to parse out common themes. I think the danger often happens when we extrapolate to situations where a particular practice might not work.
1: What are examples of sectors where the pay mix should emphasize, let's say, short-term rewards?
2: I would suspect that the uh, the sectors that you're going to find a lot of heavy emphasis on short-term bonuses would be financial services for one, and uh, I won't steal your thunder, Tom, you're more familiar there than I am, but also some consumer discretionary businesses, areas where really having the products out this season that sort of address this season's consumer demands, that's critical to the whole business. And there really is a sense of urgency each year in maximizing that year's opportunities. So in those cases, it does make sense to put more dollars into that uh, bonus category, addressing here's the what we need to accomplish over the next 12 months.
0: Yeah, Jim, I, I would agree with your comments. Financial services is is a good example. And, and again, different industries do have certain specific needs for uh, a greater focus on short-term incentives. I think another dimension to look at there is the life cycle or the stage in the life cycle uh, cycle a company is in. For example, a newer company or a company that's in more of the development stage of its life cycle is probably more focused and should be more focused on short-term incentives, the day-to-day blocking and tackling that's required to get the company stood up and up and running and for which management has greater focus and greater control on the outcomes. Ultimately, if they're doing well in those areas then it will accrete to long-term value, which can be measured as the company
2: matures.
1: And so what are then are some examples of sectors where the pay mix should emphasize equity-based long-term rewards?
2: Basically anyone I work with. I I work with a lot of software companies. I work with a lot of biotechs. And in both cases, there is absolutely a huge appetite to embrace the idea that the bulk of compensation is going to be in the long-term equity-based category. And I think in general, the idea is it's understood that these are business models that inherently are risky and that where uh, decisions made today might not accrue benefit for years to come. But when they do, things tend to move very quickly. You have an ecosystem around these companies where all the parties involved feel very much aligned with the idea that the ultimate indicator of success is shareholder value created. And so there's a clear appetite to load the executive team up with equity, frankly, loading them up with the stock options to a greater degree than what we might see in other sectors, sometimes combining that with uh, some decent stock ownership guidelines. But in general, the idea is we're comfortable with a little bit of discretion in the bonus plan, especially in biotech. But the real idea is to always keep focused on creating value down the road. I sometimes summarize this as it's a little bit of a different model than other sectors in the sense of you don't have companies that are playing not to lose. They are playing to win. And because of that, you're taking big risks that might have uh, some negative impact in the short term. And you can stomach the losses in the short term so long as we are progressing towards a real value, creating opportunity three, five years down the path.
0: It is important for most companies to have uh, a fairly heavy emphasis on long-term incentives. As we mentioned uh, before, when talking about the emphasis on short-term incentives, that is focused on companies in what you might say are special situations, new companies, companies in distress, things of that sort. Once a company is in its fully hit its run rate, you might say, as an operational company, I think long-term incentives really need to be primary emphasis of the incentive plans for the top executives. That's where you really get the alignment with shareholders over time. That said, it is important to balance both short and long-term and assess whether or assess what that balance is based on facts and circumstances specific to the company.
1: So what are some key considerations for selecting incentive metrics for a given industry sector and Can you maybe give some examples of how incentive design and metrics can differ across industries?
0: When assessing metrics, it's really important that the metrics are reflective of the short-term and long-term value drivers for a company and that they align with and support the company's business strategy. There should be a relationship between the metrics and uh, used in the long-term and short-term plans. For example, short-term incentive metrics There should generally be a greater focus on key financial, operational, and other metrics that are value drivers for the company and for which management has greater ability to control in the near term. Long-term incentive metrics, on the other hand, should focus on the long-term value creation and alignment
2: with shareholders. Let me talk a little bit about uh, an oddity relative to some other sectors. If you think about uh, a pre-revenue biotech, so a company that is uh, yet to bring a, a drug to market. These companies in general, it's not as if you're going to measure them on revenue. They have no revenue. You're not going to measure them necessarily on uh, income statement measures. What they do have though is the idea that we do have to have discipline about managing cash. So there's almost always going to be within their short-term incentive uh, scorecard, if you will, a category that speaks to cash management. The other things that are important is they've got to progress their their uh, possible treatments through their pipeline. So you might uh, see items that are related to a uh, progression to clinical trials. They also have to, th- these are true startups. They are building the organization as they go. So you'll often see uh, additional measures that, that really speak to that, growing the organization, instilling the culture that we wanna operate under for years to come. Now, when you get to the end of the year, it's not necessarily a case where each of these goals has hard, fast targets that we were working towards, it's more of a case of uh, the year-end bonus discussion is a discussion between the board and management. And it's sort of a look-back perspective on were there opportunities we missed? Are there lessons learned going forward? But then it's largely a discretionary assessment for how much of that bonus do we pay out. Because it's discretionary, it's also understood we're not putting as many dollars behind this element of compensation as uh, some other sectors might. This is a useful tool, a useful mechanism for keeping us honest, for keeping us progressing. But it's not the end-all be-all of uh, what we're trying to achieve. And, uh, and therefore, we're putting more uh, emphasis on the, on the long-term incentives, on the stock options and the similar equity vehicles.
1: That makes sense. And yeah, what I'm hearing here is, again, all these companies have these different situations, different industries, pre-revenue, everything like this. Um, is there any other kind of particular maybe examples of industries or special situations you can think of that would be um, good examples to look at here?
0: I've got an interesting situation, uh, client situation. It's a mortgage reinsurance company, which due to a a variety of events in its history is in a a runoff situation, meaning their objective is to manage the portfolio of the company, the balance sheet down in a negative way, basically shrink the size of the company and do so in in an efficient and effective way. That doesn't fit into the typical model of growth and profitability in the company at least not in the near term and there number one we're not using traditional income statement and balance sheet metrics there are some very specific and unique metrics to this business and second of all and maybe most notably is that oftentimes it's mitigating the negative mitigating the downside and that doesn't fit well within uh, a lot of the external perspectives that, that, that we often see. So that provides some unique challenges for this particular company.
1: Now the question I would have then is, why would a company use a performance measurement period that is less than three years for its long-term incentives? So as
2: context, some of the drivers in executive uh, pay design, or maybe not drivers, but at least commentators that get a lot of attention are proxy advisors, organizations that advise uh, shareholders on how they might wanna vote on various uh, ballot items. One of those ballot items is, say, on pay. Over time, proxy advisors have endorsed certain models. And there's a little known secret in executive pay, which is the magic number is always three. Oddly enough, there's a sense that if we have a vesting period, a performance period that's more than three years, it is truly long term. If we have a performance period that's less than three years, suddenly it is not long term. There's magic to it. A struggle that a lot of uh, cloud software companies have, for example, is they're not all that comfortable with the idea of setting multi-year income statement goals. In all honesty, it's often the case that a uh, three-year revenue goal or a three-year either goal, it's really a three-year guess. Anything might happen in the next uh, few quarters that could make those goals, in retrospect, look either ridiculously uh, ambitious or like layups neither of which are great situations for a compensation design. And consequently, if you look at a, a list of cloud software companies, and, you know, you grab 20 at random, you will find all sorts of creative manners of addressing that fundamental challenge. You will see companies that have instead one-year performance measure goals, and then they'll layer on some additional service-based time before you can actually earn the awards. But you earn the number of shares based on this next year's performance. You'll have companies that do that model, and then they layer on a uh, what's called a relative total shareholder return plan, which is basically we start off by seeing how we did against goals, but then we're going to spend three years seeing how our stock price does relative to a basket of uh, similar companies, and that might uh, bump up or bump down the number of shares ultimately earned. You'll have companies that have parallel one-year, two-year, three-year performance periods. There's a lot of creativity. In each of these situations, though, one of the things that's common is there might be a little bit of a pushback from the proxy advisors initially, just along the lines of, does this really feel like long-term performance that's being assessed? And so it's incumbent on these companies in these situations to really put some effort into the, uh, the storytelling and uh, having crisp explanations to their investors about why they chose the model they did, how it's uh, in the shareholders' interest, how it holds management accountable. Really, in an ideal world, there's also an opportunity to show how it has worked over time. And if it's not working over time, that's the opportunity to pivot to a different model. I think continuous improvement is a a theme that probably resonates with a lot of these companies as well. As the company grows, as it evolves, a new type of program might make sense for compensation.
1: Great. That makes a lot of sense. And you definitely see how an individual company or companies that have so much uncertainty over the next three years, like you said, particularly in tech, it just makes a lot of sense there on why it would be really hard to set a three-year target for an industry that it just moves at such a rapid pace, especially if they're recently gone to IPO or they're still growing and everything. So much happens in that space so quickly. Another point on this, I want to hit on as well is the prevalence of stock options. You guys have mentioned has declined for several reasons and are stock options still viable for long-term incentives, and what sectors do they fit or not fit in?
0: Stock options, historically, were much more prevalent than they are today, And there are a number of factors that really specifically influenced the downward trend in, in the use of, of options. One was not changing the accounting rules a number of years ago, and then in addition to that, it was a greater emphasis on dilution and overhang from share plans. As a result, the number of companies that use options and the weightings of options in the long-term incentive mix has gone down significantly, replaced in large part by performance shares. I personally think that stock options have a very important role for many companies, especially ones where there is a great deal of volatility in the industry, for companies where there is uh, a long cycle from investment to returns, and in the case of, and Jim can speak to this in greater detail, in the case of technology companies and startup companies, they are a highly competitive and highly attractive mechanism for uh, attracting and retaining talent.
2: Yeah, and I'll actually pivot. They they very much remain the coin of the realm for recently IPO'd uh, biotech companies. They still are a very popular instrument, at least at the executive level, for a lot of uh, software companies. There are a few common themes for how to make these things work well. And one is setting clear expectations up front, that these are vehicles that foster alignment with shareholders over the long term. Over a short period of time, because of the stock price volatility and because of when you receive your options... You can absolutely run into situations where you have what look like a pretty stark inequities between someone who maybe got a grant in March versus someone who got a grant in July. Year over year, those tend to smooth out. But if you start setting the expectation that this is an award where when things are going south, the company is in a position to reset, if you will. Then you have a problem. That is, that is, I think, an item that uh, shareholders are not particularly uh, thrilled about, and it gets to the whole uh, concept of underwater option uh, repricing or underwater option exchanges. But these are a vehicle that works wonderfully with a lot of my biotech uh, startups. They are really trying to foster alignment with uh, their investors over the long term. It's really difficult for them to come up with uh, performance measures in their long-term incentives. And it's also, there is something to be said that it's just understood to be the most prevalent uh, instrument in that sector, um, where a lot of the recipients themselves are very comfortable with the idea of this is a high-risk, high-reward instrument. Uh, they're always looking at the, uh, the upside potential. That's a very different story than other sectors where you really have to focus on protecting the downside. You're really looking at the equity instrument to perhaps be stronger with respect to providing retention hooks. And options are not going to be providing retention hooks when they are underwater.
1: Jump over to another topic here of how are your clients finding a place for ESG in their incentive programs? Are there common ESG metrics that make sense across all sectors? Are these also similar individually sectors, or how do you guys look at that?
0: There are clearly commonalities to the categories, the pillars, you might say, of ESG across every company in every industry. However, there are also significant differences. And I think one of the things that companies are challenged across different industries is what's the right fit, what's the right metric for their company and their situation. A couple of examples. One is within the oil and gas industry, the, there has been a significant focus for a very long time on environmental health and safety metrics, spills, work for, you know, workplace injuries, things of that nature. In this new realm of ESG, those types of metrics are table stakes. The new metrics in for ESG and oil and gas is really more about emissions and carbon footprint. The challenge there is how do we measure that? what's the right baseline, things of that nature. And all companies are figuring that out. I've got another company, another client company, that is in a uh, consumer services business where it's not as obvious what the environmental component of ESG is. They're much more focused on the S component or the S pillar of ESG. So the point is that it really varies by company. I think what's most important for companies is to have an ESG strategy disclose what that is, and then figure out what's the right measurement and time period over which to measure in the ESG metrics and at what point is it appropriate to incorporate them into the incentive plans, including understanding the balance of the cost and the benefit of the different metrics as you in- in- include them in the business model.
1: Let's carry on to our final area here on just implications of deviating from proxy advisor preferred practices. And so when do companies need to be mindful of proxy advisor perspectives on executive compensation?
2: Some companies probably need to be more mindful than others. A lot of this really depends on what your shareholder base is and the degree to which they are influenced by the proxy advisor vote. Are they subscribers to uh, an ISS or a Glass-Lewis? With um, Especially with a lot of small cap companies, you might often find a shareholder base that is dominated by perhaps one or two investors. There might still be some private equity money in play. Often you'll have some insiders with a significant ownership position, and that tends to insulate you to a degree from uh, criticisms from the proxy advisors. Larger companies that start to have much more of an institutional shareholder base, the story changes. But even then, you don't want to make the blanket assumption that every large institutional shareholder has a similar mindset about pay issues that the principal proxy advisors have. So one is just understanding your shareholder base and do they, in fact, listen to the proxy advisors? Number two is really the performance story. If you have not been delivering returns for shareholders in recent years, your pay program is going to get greater scrutiny, period. It is much more likely that you'll also end up in a situation where these advisors might suspect that you have pay for, a pay-for-performance misalignment, which increases the likelihood that they are going to recommend against uh, Sam thing. But the commonalities that, that you can see there are, one... Has the investor experience been positive? Two are the investors generally customers of the of these outfits? There's one other danger item that's probably worth mentioning. If the first time your investor a large investor ever hears about you on pay matters is when you have a problem, that's not a healthy dynamic. One of the things that's really happened over the last I'll oh, say eight to nine years is companies have gotten into a much better practice of proactively reaching out to shareholders having regular shareholder engagement on compensation issues. That's been a very healthy dynamic, and it provides a mechanism for not just communication back and forth, but to move the dials each year because you can see signals about uh, items that your own shareholder base might be uh, concerned about. And if you don't have that ongoing mechanism, you're setting yourself up for some bad surprises in the uh, other bad years. No one ever wants to be approached only when you're asking them for a favor,
0: frankly. I would agree with Jim's comments there. I think it's really important for companies, especially when they are in different industries that don't always fit into the template that we referred to earlier, the proxy advisor template, you might say, to engage with shareholders through multiple, both through direct engagement, as well as obviously through the proxy statement disclosures, and really tell the story. Why do we do what we do and really lay that out in a clear and convincing way? And and that, that really addresses a lot of the issues.
1: And so for companies that are outside of these preferred practices of the proxy advisors, are there any other ways that they approach gaining shareholder support? You guys have hit on some of this here, but anything else that comes to mind?
2: I'll reiterate the point of having a crisp explanation. Anyone who is in the unfortunate position of having to read a lot of proxies every year is going to recognize that um, as a communications document, they've really changed. There is a certain format that is emerging that's standard and that, frankly, investors are getting used to reading. They expect to see certain tables that speak to, here's what we do, here's what we don't do. They expect to see tables that uh, speak to what are the benchmarking comparators, the peers, often evidence that there's pay for performance alignment. So upping your game with respect to that type of disclosure is important. The other thing to always keep in mind here is nature of a vacuum. If you are not telling the story, somebody else will tell it for you. This is absolutely the case with any criticism that might be coming out of proxy advisors. If you have a uh, cDNA section of your proxy, that is very much a compliance document that's, here's just the facts, ma'am. Here's some tables but aren't making an effort to share the analysis and to explain why you chose to do what you did. Believe me, your investors are going to look for that type of information from somewhere and it's likely to be coming from ISS and Glass Lewis. and it might be that they have a take that you don't agree with. So making the effort to be proactive on this front is absolutely critical.
1: What are the consequences of failing say on pay? What happens then?
2: In that case, you're
0: forced to do the shareholder engagement. It's, look, it's unlike in the UK and in, in, in Europe, it's not a, a binding vote, but it's still a, sig- a significant event to fail, say, on pay. And less than 2% of companies do fail, say, on pay on an annual basis. So you don't want to be in that very small minority. But what it means is that you have some follow-up action to do and need to engage with shareholders and listen to them and be responsive to what they are looking for. Now, shareholders might might say very might offer very little, but if you failed, say, on pay, there are enough voices with enough voting power that you're not doing something right and you need to take heed of that and make changes. And so it's really about listening and then responding. That's frankly how the proxy advisors also, in large part, assess Next year's say on pay evaluation is how responsive were you? And again, as we said, articulating your rationale, articulating the shareholder engagement process, what you heard and how you've responded to it.
2: And I would add one of the most significant consequences is just the time sink that you're going to be experiencing trying to get out of this hole. Your board member time, every five minutes that's spent on addressing the fact that we lost the faith of our shareholders on compensation is a minute that's not spent on strategic thinking. Make no mistake, I'm not suggesting these aren't important items. It is absolutely critical that you have a shareholder support. What you do on compensation is a lens to the rest of the organization's decision making because there is so much information that you're sharing with investors on this topic. It is absolutely going to be considered a lens to how the company goes about allocating resources and how deliberate it is in its, uh, its approach. But once you, uh, you run into uh, some trouble, you run into some headwinds, you are going to be rolling up your sleeves and trying to get out of that penalty box for a while. It is absolutely a drain on, let's just say, mental energy.
1: That's phenomenal. And so as we wrap up here, the final question I'll ask both of you guys is, if you... We have been talking here about a lot of the details about tailoring pay to individual situations. And at a high level, you know, what advice would you give to a company just around this topic of having to tailor pay to individual situations? What advice would you give someone?
2: Honestly, the hardest part here of the process is articulating what is the problem that you're trying to solve right up front and taking the time to really think about that, to identify Here's what our performance priorities are. Here's how we want to reward them. Our tolerances for missing targets, our expectations for rewarding upside performance, how we want to be positioned versus market, taking the time to really argue, articulate what does success look like is going to inform everything else that happens later. And it's, it's fascinating to me how often we fast forward through that step and instead have an appetite to immediately say, okay, tell us what the market studies are. What are other companies doing? What's the general prevalence of practice? What are the trends? And what's similar about all of those items, what other companies are doing, is they're not you. They're solving for problems that you may not have. They're solving for different priorities, different constraints, different oppor- opportunities. I very much am a fan of the start out with the blank sheet of paper and try to really work through with the board, with the management team. What does good look like and why?
0: And I would agree. I think it's really about focusing the design of your incentive plans, everything from the mix of pay to the metrics to your business and your business strategy. Get that out initially and then figure out how it fits into the various templates and lenses through which the outside world will evaluate these programs it's a lot easier to round the corners or smooth the corners, the rough corners, than to uh, start with something that's not really a good fit for your business. And then second of all is just explain it in very clear and concise terms to establish the rationale for it. And frankly, if you can't do that in a, with a straight face, maybe something's wrong with the design, but I think those are the real keys.
1: Great. Thank you both for taking the time to come on here, Jim and Tom. This was phenomenal and uh, appreciate you guys sharing all this knowledge today. Thank you,
2: Jake. Our pleasure.
1: This episode is brought to you by Meridian Compensation Partners. Meridian works with compensation committees to ensure the most effective processes are in place to go beyond mere compliance with governance requirements and create healthy dynamic relationships between the board, management, and its advisors. Meridian helps boards use compensation to attract and retain critical talent and to make informed business decisions that will link pay and performance, drive business results, increase shareholder value, and mitigate potential risks. Learn more at meridiancp.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Executive Compensation Podcast. You can see more about this episode along with additional executive compensation insights at meridiancp.com. That's Meridian, the letter C, and the letter p.com. dot com.